what he's learning from perspective. So we've got 18 people uh, doing that, and we just completed, what was it, uh, week 15? Was it, is it 15 that we just completed? Or no, we didn't. Com- there is 15. We just completed week 11. Yeah, yeah, I, I see the finish line. That's why. The finish line is there, right, Shelly? So we got several people here in class. Jeff, Shelly, Pat, uh, Andrew's down here. Uh, anybody else? Randy, Dana, Gwen. And so they're all serving. Uh, some are alumni. This is Andrew's first time. So, Andrew, why don't you come and uh, share with us what you're learning? Now, he's going to want to take a lot of time. So we're going to give him all the time he wants. Right, Andrew? Yeah. <laughs> Good morning. Um, kind of just as uh, Chris had said, um, I've been in perspectives for the last uh, cu- couple months now, um, and it's um, been a great time. And uh, really, he wanted me to just come up and describe really why I started uh, looking into perspectives, why I wanted to take it, and kind of a little bit about what I w- what I learned, um, at least thus far. Um, and basically. The reason why I decided to take perspectives, I think the best way of describing that is uh, through a story. Um, basically, right around um, World Outreach, um, Hudson Smith came up. I think it was on that Thursday night that he was uh, presenting during World Outreach. Um, toward the end of his, um, his presentation uh, of, of what he had to say, uh, he had mentioned something. Um, missions wasn't something that you just jump into. It's about taking the next step and looking towards what is that next step. Um, and at the end of it, when he presented it that way and um, how he said, you know, think about it, what is your next step? I really didn't have an answer to what the next step was. And I was just kind of sitting there clueless for a bit, like, oh, no, I've got nothing here. Um, Chris came up and said, all right, if you don't know what your next step is, I'm like, ah, there we go. <laughs> uh, you guys, you might take perspectives. Um, Hudson Smith does teach in perspectives, so I was like, all righty. I, I think that's going to be my next step because uh, other than that, I've got nothing. So um, that's what I did. I went and enrolled with perspectives, talked with Ashley about it because, um, as all you husbands know, it's very important to collaborate. Otherwise, you end up in trouble. So we decided to both take perspectives. Um, and it's been a great time. Um, and how I'd really uh, describe perspectives, um, I, I would like to tell another story, really from one of the nights of perspectives. I, I think really encapsulates the idea of perspective, uh, perspectives. And it's stuck with me since that night. What um, During the first, I think it was like the fourth lesson, the very beginning, we'd always, we kind of always do... Um, an activity uh, with everyone around the tables. And in that evening, before the speaker got up and spoke, um, the presenter uh, just kind of had us write one word that we would use to describe perspectives thus far. Um, And for me, my word was enlightenment, and it was kind of lame in comparison to another word that somebody else had. Um, And I think his word really encapsulated what perspectives is, and he called it funnel vision. Funnel vision. Um, and I was like, or once he described it, at first I was like, what? Um, but after he described it, it made a whole, whole lot of sense. Um, and the way he described it, it took all of the things that he has learned in his Christian walk, all of the different things, as well as adding several new things, um, and poured it into a funnel. Um, 
And at the end of that funnel, it was really the perspective. That is God's perspective um, throughout various uh, really teachings. Uh, What was God's perspective in the Bible? What is God's perspective in his truth and what he's trying to communicate to us? He's trying to communicate that, you know, we need to spread the gospel to the nations. And it's there from the very beginning, from Genesis on. And it's really just took all of those different stories I heard in Sunday school, um, in church, and, you know, just different classes and things like that, and brought it together and highlighted the perspective of God in that. Um, And beyond that, it, it wasn't just that it was appropriate for that particular time period, you know, that that lesson four time period. It has been, you know, really keynoted throughout the entire uh, course. It, it takes everything that I've been taught and I've learned already from perspectives. There's been a lot of things that I um, have really been eye-opening and I didn't really think of it that way. And it really showed me that this would be God's perspective in this instance, um, especially in um, the history aspect and um, even more so in the cultural. They talk about culture inside of perspectives like um, within reaching different cultures inside of the outside nations. I did not think of it in an aspect of, okay, we need to try and become more like them, be like Paul when he goes and becomes like the Romans to spread the gospel to them. He becomes like them. So there's a lot of just things that are that were highlighted. They were always there, but I didn't necessarily understand God's perspective until I kind of it was shown to me. So that's really what perspectives has been for me thus far. Uh, it's been funnel vision, taking um, a word that my wife uses, uh, all the good stuff that I've uh, learned about in my Christian walk thus far and shown me God's perspective with that. Um, and then taking all of that, um, it, it's also shown me um, and answered the question that I initially had going into perspectives. What are my next steps going to be? It's shown me that it's not just, well, you have to be a missionary or something like that. There's more to it uh, than that. There are things that I can do um, to really spread the fame of his name, to steal something from Chris. Um, and so that that's really what perspectives has been to me thus far. It's been uh, funnel vision. Thank you. Well, that's encouraging. And uh, everybody has a a different story and a different thing they're learning. And so be sure to ask these guys. And uh, they had they got spring break. So we're not meeting Monday. So don't show up here tomorrow night or you'll be all alone. Uh, But uh, they're persevering and headed towards the final uh, 15 weeks. So it's been good. And it's been a privilege to host this. And thankful to God for giving us that opportunity. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and uh, ask his blessings on uh, hearing his word today. Father, we come and we rejoice that you are a missionary God and you sent your son to be a missionary savior who became one of us and engaged our culture and uh, felt what we felt and uh, faced what we faced. And yet he did it without sin. And he was crucified and raised. And Lord, now he is our mediator as we're learning in the book of Hebrews. And so as we move into uh, this Palm Sunday and ultimately into our Easter celebration, Resurrection Sunday next week, I pray that 
what we're learning here in the book of Hebrews would uh, uh, has exalted and increased our sense of who you are and the privilege of being your new covenant believer priest. Help us to hear what you're saying to us through your word and seal it in our hearts with an obedient faith. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, turn with me to Hebrews 10. We're in the last passage of Hebrews 10, and we are going to look at Hebrews 10, 32 through 39. So this is going to wrap up chapter 10 in our series on drawing near. And here's what I want to begin by asking you. Have you heard God's voice speaking to you in the warning passages? We've spent four weeks in the warning passage of chapter 10, but we also expanded that to all five warning passages. Again and again in the book of Hebrews, It's really the main theme is God has spoken finally and decisively in His Son, Jesus Christ. And again and again, especially in chapters 3 and 4, it says, Have you heard His voice today? Have you heard His voice today? If so, do not harden your hearts like the nation of Israel did in the wilderness when they provoked the Lord. And so, have you heard... It's God speaking to us through Scripture. Have you heard my voice speaking to you? If so, don't harden your hearts. And for the last three weeks, we've seen at least three types of people that God is speaking to. One, the fallen apostates. Have you heard my voice? And if you have, here's what you should have heard. Be warned. Be warned. In fact, be afraid. Be very afraid, right? That's if you are a fallen apostate here this morning. But the reality is, actually, the apostates aren't here, are they? They've fallen away. That's what the very nature of it is. They've already forsaken the assembly of God's people. They've fallen away from the faith. They've deliberately and persistently chosen to trample the Son of God underfoot. They've treated the sanctifying blood of his sacrifice as unclean and they've taunted the Holy Spirit with arrogant insults. I just cannot emphasize enough that the apostates are not simply people that have quit going to church, although that is a horrible position to be in and it's leading into that kind of apostasy. But they are people that have taken that deliberate, willful step of denying the faith. And so we should warn them of certain expectation, but we should not offer false assurance to them that, hey, it's okay, you're saved, you made a decision in the past, and even though you deny it now, you're okay. But we've also heard that God is speaking to loyal brethren, loyal brethren, believers. Have you heard my voice? And what you should have heard for the last four weeks is remain loyal. If you are hearing God's voice through these warning passages, and you're a loyal uh, brother and sister in Christ, remain loyal. How do you do that? Continue to draw near in faith. Continue to hold fast to your hope. Continue to stay close in love, encouraging one another all the more as you see the day approaching. But maybe you're here today, and you're a drifting brother or sister in Christ. Because really, 
what he is trying to do and what he's concerned about in this book is those who are drifting brethren. Have you heard my voice? You say, well, what are the drifting brethren characterized? Well, they're characterized by all five of the warnings. Here it is. Those whose hearts, it's a heart issue. It's a heart issue. Those whose hearts are drifting or hardening or have stagnated or have begun to forsake the assembling of yourselves together and who are refusing to respond to what the Lord has said, refusing to respond with an obedient faith. Some had already begun to do that in this letter by their forsaking of consistent worship and assembling at the local church. So, what should we do? Well, first of all, I want you to know, people that are beginning to to do this are not apostates. Everybody he's talking to in this, he, he, he does not tell any of them, you've already done this. It's kind of the idea. If you're here, then there's an indication. But you, even though you're here in body, you may not be here in heart. And that's the issue. You may profess the Lord, but in heart, you may be drifting from Him. So first of all, remember, you're, if you're drifting... You're in a, 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 a very scary position spiritually. It's not a place to reside. Second of all, if you're in that position, there's hope for you this morning. Apply today's message because that's what today's message is about. Confidence to enter into God's holy presence is shown by taking bold action to press on, to press on as a new covenant believer. If you're drifting stop and start pressing on. If you're neglecting, stop and start pressing on. If you've stagnated, stop and start pressing on. Let's listen to the passage. Uh, Look at verse 32. Follow along with me in your Bibles or on your your, uh, digital device. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 32. But remember the former days when after being enlightened... Now, Now, notice... And I I hate to say it, but there's really no other way. There is a big but there, okay? There's a big but there. And notice what he's saying. He's coming off of this frightening, terrifying warning. And he says it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of God. But there's something different for you. There's a contrast here. Instead of being anxious and worried about that, I want you to remember... The former days, when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers, and that's the word for fellowship, koinonia, partners, becoming partners with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully, the seizure of your property. Boy, that's odd. Knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. For yet in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he 
shrinks back. My soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. Wow, what an encouraging passage. So again, this is a pattern. I gave you, there's like this pattern in these warnings where there'll be a severe warning, but then it's followed up by this confident encouragement. And so that's something for us to remember. Uh, So in these words, I would sum them all up as press on, press on. And basically the heart of this passage that we just read is found in verses 35 and 36. And there's a negative command and there is a positive command. If we're going to press on, then we need to look at these two aspects. This is kind of the heart of the passage and the heart of the message. And it's this negatively, when you press on, don't throw away your confidence. Don't throw away your confidence, your confidence in Christ. Man, this word confidence, we've already talked about it way at the first message in this series. We see it for the first time uh, in this chapter in verse 19. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh, And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us, let us, let us. The whole basis of this is our confidence, not in us, but in whom? And specifically who? In Christ, yes. In Christ as our sinless mediator and as our sufficient sacrifice. But we also encounter this confidence in verses, uh, chapter 3, verse 6. Listen to chapter 3, verse 6. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are, if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. And then chapter 4, verse 16, Therefore let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Don't throw away, uh, basically, your hope for salvation. Don't throw away your only hope, your confidence, your faith, your assurance in Jesus alone. Secondly, positively, from a positive standpoint, you have need of endurance. That's in verse 36. So don't throw away your confidence. Instead, hold fast to it. Endure and persevere. That's verse 36. Look at verse 36. But you have need, notice, need. Perseverance is not optional, it's a necessity. Perseverance is not like, hey, I'll rest on my laurels of a past decision to accept Christ, and I don't need to persevere in the things of worshiping, giving, serving, uh, encouraging, fellowshipping. That's all optional. No, you have need. It's a necessity of endurance and not only is it a necessity but the tense of that verb that you have it's continual it's a present tense we need to continually not occasionally so it's not optional but it's not also not occasional we need to continually press on and persevere now endurance is key to this whole book so this isn't just this chapter it's key to this whole book 
And I wish I had time to take you through it, but let's just look at this passage. It's at the beginning of this passage in verse 32, which I just read. But it's also, it's well, look at verse 32. But remember the former days when after being enlightened, you endured. Then it's at the end of this passage. Look at verse 39. But we are not those who shrink back to destruction, but those who have faith to the preserving, the preserving of the soul. So it's all through here. As if you would keep reading in Hebrews, you'd go to chapter 11. You know why people are in the hall of faith? Chapter 11 is called the the hall of faith. You know why the Old Testament people are in there? Because they endured. Because they endured. Because they endured. And then when you come to Hebrews 12, you get the ultimate example who is Jesus Christ. And this word endurance is used at least three times in Hebrews 12, 1 through 3. It says, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him. Remember, we just read about joy who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. So there's your two big ideas. Don't throw away your confidence, and you have need of endurance. In a sense... This is the grit factor. You know, that grit is a big new business idea. You got to have grit, right? And there's this lady uh, who, uh, psychologist Angela Lee Duckworth, has made grit the focus of years of study. And here's what she's found out. It turns out that across all ethnic, socioeconomic, educational, and psychological demographics, one characteristic emerges as the significant predictor of success, and that is grit, which is just another word for endurance, endurance. And here's, what, here's how she defines grit. The ability to persevere in pursuing a future goal over a long period of time and not giving up. It's having stanima. It's sticking with your future day in, day out, not just for a week, not just for a month, but for years and working really hard to make that future a reality. Grit is living life like it's a marathon, not a sprint. Man, you would think the author of Hebrews is writing that, except that we're not working to make our future a reality. Our future is a reality, and we're running toward it it by grit that is generated by grace. Isn't that good news? It's God-given, grace-generated grit is what really this passage is talking about. And Hebrews chapter 11 is filled with gritty examples of persevering faith. And we want to be like those people, right? Amen? We want to be gritty examples of persevering faith. So, here's what this passage does. If you're drifting, neglecting, stagnating, if you're one who has remained loyal up to this point, the reason you have is because you've pressed on. And the reason you're stagnating is because you have failed to press on. So here's what this passage is going to do. It's going to give us 
Three reminders. Do you see at the first verse it says, but remember, but remember. So here are three reminders for pressing on as a new covenant believer priest so that you can demonstrate God-given, grace-generated grit. And here's the first thing you got to do. Remember to look back to press on. Okay? Remember to look back to press on. Look, Notice what it says in verses 32. That's what verses 32 through 34 are all about. Let's look at verse 32. But remember the former days. Okay, those are the days in the past. When after being enlightened, that is your conversion. You endured a great conflict of sufferings. That is persecution. And that's what we are to remember about our past. So here's what he's saying. He's saying, look back. Now, when he says look back, he's not telling us to just reminisce about the good old days. Whenever we were tempted to give up. He's not telling us to wring our hands and wish our way back to the past. That is not what he means. What he means is start remembering to look back at two significant times in your spiritual life. And they come down to this. Look back to your conversion and look back to times when you were persecuted. Okay, so those are the two ideas. Let's look at it. Number one, look back to your conversion When God enlightened you to a great salvation. In the book of Hebrews, our salvation is called so great a salvation. And we are to look back to our conversion. That's what I see in that phrase, after being enlightened. I believe this refers to the true time of their conversion and salvation. This phrase, being enlightened, is used again in Hebrews 6. Why don't you turn there real quickly. Hebrews 6, verse 4. The question in the book of Hebrews is, does this really refer to true conversion? Or does it mean the Spirit has convicted you, you responded, but you never really converted? This, this is a key phrase that wraps up all these warning passages. And I don't want to, and I can't take you all through, you know, why I, I hope as you've listened for the last four weeks, you realize that I really believe, though I wouldn't take a bullet for it, but I really believe that he's talking to true believers in these warnings. And one of the reasons is how he uses after being enlightened in this passage. Because he's saying, look back to how your life was transformed after being enlightened. And unless we're going to say he's teaching you can lose your salvation, he's pointing back to a real conversion, okay? And he mentions it in Hebrews 6, 4. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift of salvation and have been made partakers, sharers, partners in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. Wow, I don't think you could use anything more in the book of Hebrews to describe a true believer. I think after enlightened, being enlightened is your conversion. So the idea is not to look back and question your salvation, but to remember how God truly saved you and has continued to secure you in your salvation. So let's look back. First of all, remember the former days when in that phrase, after being enlightened, I want to unpack that in three ways. Remember the former days of, first of all, your conversion by God's power. Remember when he enlightened you 
and you saw Jesus for who He really was, the Son of God, the only Savior, who by faith alone, through grace alone, is your Savior, think back to your conversion by God's power and don't ever fall away from that. Instead, remember and rejoice and take bold action. Think back to that time when God powerfully converted you and use that as motivation in the present to press on. Amen? Make sense? Your conversion by God's power. Second of all, think about your identification with God's people. Your identification with God's people. I don't know, it doesn't look like that, but that's what it is. Your identification with God's people. Why? Because what happens? When you're enlightened and God converts you, you submit to baptism and you identify with Jesus, His death, burial, and resurrection, and with His gathered people. Remember. So here's the thing. They're tempted to forsake God's assembly. You need to go back and remember your baptism where you were identified with these people. Remember, God didn't save you in isolation. He called you out of the world and into a local gathered assembly. I think he's reminding them of that because that is part and parcel of this conversion experience. And then third, remember your transformation. God doesn't save people without changing them. And it begins on the inside, so it may take time to see But ultimately, it's manifested in a changed life. So when he says, after you've been enlightened, I'm challenging you this this morning. Can you look back to a time in your life? And I don't mean the exact date and time. I mean that moment where God, by his power, enlightened and converted you. When God identified you and called you out to his people. And when God, by this power of his spirit, transformed your life and caused a change from the inside out, look at that and then use it as motivation to press on in the present. All right? You don't, you don't look back at that and say, oh, I've got fire insurance. I can live any way I want. I can believe any way I want. I can dabble in the world. I can go to church when I want. I can give what I want. I can read what I want. I can leave my Bible shut if I want. No, look back at this and press on in doing all those things. Pretty powerful stuff. See, the point here, I believe he's saying, he says, remember the former days when after... After all this, the point is, we are not saved, once saved, always saved to live any way we want or believe anything we want. We are once saved, always saved to press on. And your past conversion, identification with his people and transformation by the power of God's spirit. In fact, I think when you think about this enlightenment, It kind of follows the idea of the Son of God, the the sacrifice that he talked about. Remember, the sacrifice sets us apart, right? To where? Where? Apart from sin to righteousness, but also apart from the world to his people. And then here, the spirit of grace. I think he's saying, hey, 
You know those three things that the apostate tramples and treats as ordinary and taunts by his lifestyle and beliefs? No. Treasure it. Don't trample. Treasure. Don't treat as cheap. Treat as rich. Don't taunt. But instead, press on. Powerful stuff. But here's what I want you to understand, though. After being enlightened is very important. I hope I've convinced you of that. But that's not what the focus ultimately lies. What we're really supposed to look back to and start remembering is when, after being enlightened, you endured. So the idea is not just your conversion, but more importantly, your perseverance in persecution that follows. It's what follows out of this in times of persecution. That's what he wants and how you persevere through it. Does that make sense? That's the idea. He's saying, hey, remember when after this happened? Notice what he says in verse 35. You endured a great conflict of suffering. So look back, not just to your conversion, but look back to your persecution when you endured such great suffering. Look back. So here is your conversion after being enlightened conversion to a great salvation, but really look back to the persecution that you endured in the midst of what? Great suffering. So the focus is not a moment in time back there. It's the result and what came out of that. Okay? So... The emphasis, what's the focus on? Look at verse 32 again. In verse 32, the focus is what came after the enlightenment and what came after it was great endurance, God-given, grace-generated grit. Now, what's the emphasis? The emphasis is how great the persecution and suffering was and how much they endured and persevered through it. So, Here's what I want you to see about verses 32 through 34. The moment or the time, the days of their conversion is given one phrase after being enlightened. What comes after that true conversion is given three verses. Do you see where the focus lies? So this is a reality, but this is the proof. This is, this is what you're to focus on. Look, I got saved and I persevered through a bunch of hard times. Pastor Tyrone used to like to talk about the file cabinet in his mind. He can pull out that file cabinet of, wow, God came through here. Hey, I persevered here. And that's what he's saying. He's saying, get your file cabinet out. That's a little old terminology. So pull up your hard drive, right? And uh, you're, look at your backup, right? And look at these experiences. Wow. And so I just want you, just in uh, verse 32, I want you to see that it was a great conflict. And that is an athletic term for a contest and a competition. In other words, the Christian life is like a race. It's like a fight. 
and it's a competition. And basically what he's saying is you were in a big athletic competition and you came out as winners. And you know why? Because you didn't quit. You didn't quit. You didn't quit. I may not be the most talented, like William Carey said, I'm not much, but I'm a plotter, right? You don't have to be a great athlete, spiritual athlete. You just need to be a plot. Don't quit in this athletic competition. Number two, it has, uh, these aren't in your notes. I'm just observations. It was a great conflict that was, that included great suffering. The competition, he doesn't focus on the people persecuting them. He's focusing on the persecution and the pain itself. Because we wrestle not against flesh and blood. It doesn't matter where it's coming from. Your boss, the world, your family. It doesn't matter. What matters is the pain that you persevere through. Focus on persevering through the pain, not on the people causing that pain. Third, there was a great struggle. There was a great struggle. It says that word great means it was hard fought. It wasn't easily won. It took endurance. It took perseverance. It took the faith and the hope and the love from God and from his people to come out as a winner. And then finally, it required great endurance. So you got four words there. Contest, persecution, sufferings. And by the way, that word sufferings is always in the plural. So if you just came through your first big suffering in life and you think, good, got that out of the way. Nay, nay, nay. It's plural. It's plural. But you got God generated, God given, grace generated grit to make it through. Is that good? Good stuff. Okay, so let's look at it. Let's break it down. There's four lines of what they what their persecution was like. Okay. And let's be honest, we're not going to be able to identify with a lot of this. But I'm going to have some application for you at the end because that's what I had to struggle with. Because, okay, you're supposed to look back at the great persecution you endured since you got saved. Most of us, using Tyrone's uh, illustration, have a very small, we could have a card catalog. I, used to, I brought illustrations to this church in a card catalog system. And uh, I gave it to someone else, and they took a picture of it just a couple months ago and said, I'm getting rid of this. You gave it to me. If you want it back. I said, no, it's all on the computer. Okay, anyway, very funny. All right, so here's the day. Remember the former days of, number one, public shame you endured. Public shame. Notice verse 33. Partly by being made a spectacle through reproaches and tribulation. That word spectacle is the word for theater. They were put on the stage of their, of their community. They were put out for public display. And then they were spat upon. They were insulted. They were mocked. They were ridiculed. They might have even been beaten. But not to the point of shedding blood. None were, were martyrs. According to chapter 12, the, the author says, None of you have suffered to the point of shedding blood. So they weren't martyred yet but they it was public shame public shame one quick application i think that is our is probably the number one fear perhaps of contemporary christians in this culture as of yet we don't fear being killed we don't fear being beaten just yet 
Though if you take the temperature of the culture by the words and the emotion, there's a lot of hate out there. But you know what I think we fear? We fear public shame, ridicule, mocking. Keep that in mind. Number two, personal support when others needed to when others needed to endure. So he says, partly you suffered public shame and you persevered, but also you supported others when they were being ridiculed. So what's the temptation? Here, and I, again, I think we as Christians do this. Wow, they stood up for Christ. Look at look at the uh, verbal beating they're taking. Good luck with that. I'm behind you. Way back here. You get what I'm saying? So here's what they did. Here's what they did. He said, hey, remember when that great persecution came and you were put on public display and public shame, but then when others of your assembly, when they went through it, you ran to them and shared in their... And here's what happens. When other people are being shamed, and you run to their help, what, what happens to you? You share in that shame. So they personally supported others. Notice verse 33. And partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. And I said that word sharers is the word for fellowship. See, the real test of our fellowship as a church is not getting together in our grow groups when everything's good. It's when things are bad and others are suffering and we're drawn to them to endure the shame of what they're suffering. And you don't just have to be beaten to have shame. Any suffering that comes into our lives brings great shame upon us. Any suffering. It can be a wayward kid. It can be a spouse with a roving eye. I mean, I don't care what it is. The first response that people feel when they go through suffering is shame. And I don't want to tell anybody about it. I'm afraid what they will say. and Maybe, is this because I've sent Shame. There's more of that in our culture than what we understand. And I think we operate on it a lot. Personal support. You realize when Jesus suffered his most, what happened to all his disciples? They ran. When Paul was at the last trial for his faith, what did he say? And no one stood with me. These guys had a track record of running to those who were suffering. Three, a practical sympathy when others were enduring imprisonment. So public scorn, personal support, a practical sympathy when others were enduring imprisonment. Look at verse 34. Here's how they really shared in other people's suffering. Here's how they really were supporting them. He says, for you showed sympathy to the prisoners. Now, here's what you got to understand. Prisoners in that time did not have, they weren't given three, uh, what was it, three hots and a, and a cot? Three hots and a cot? You know, there's a time where people wanted to go to prison because you got three hot meals and a bed. No, 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 no. You didn't get fed. If your friends did not bring you food, you starved in prison. If they did not bring you clothes, 
you froze in prison. That's why Paul says, hey, Timothy, when you come see me, please bring me the cloak for winter is approaching. Now, let me just share a little bit. I felt what it was like to visit a man who had committed a great sin and was sent to prison for it. So he wasn't like these people. He wasn't suffering for his faith. He was suffering for his sin. And I won't say much more about that except to say that through that experience, the Lord taught me something of the shame that's attached to you personally when you visit someone in prison that the culture condemns and seeks to shame. In this man's case, rightly so. But all I'm saying is I really learned what it was to faithfully visit someone because you basically are identifying yourself with them. And so, while this man deserved what he got, each time I visited him, and as I did so, and I, and I sought to do so faithfully, it caused me to ask, one, could I endure such imprisonment for the gospel? Because it wasn't a pretty sight. Two, who might betray me and turn me in? Because to betray someone, it has to be someone close to you. right? Third, Who would be willing to risk their own imprisonment to come and visit me? These are the questions. And he's saying, hey, you guys have a track record of doing that. Of doing that. Number four, property seizure. Property seizure. When others were enduring imprisonment. Because he says, verse 34, And you accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession. Now, we don't know if the Roman government took their property or if it was mob action. Because if you looked at the riots that we increasingly have in our country, what happens when, the, you know, when it's acceptable to do this and the government allows it, people run rampant. And so here's the idea. If you were thrown into prison, pretty much your property was free game. Or... It was such that the government looked the other way because the people's property were trouble, you know, were seen as troublemakers, and so you could come in and take it. In Hebrews chapter 11, some of the heroes of the faith went about in sheepskins, goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill treated, men of whom the world is not worthy, wandering in deserts, mountains, and caves, and holes in the ground. Now, here's the bottom line. These guys are to remember in the days past when they spoke up, stood firm, suffered, and stayed close to one another in the midst of suffering. Now, how do we we apply this? Okay, so here's what we're, this is probably as far as we're going to get. So, here's what I want you to do. I just want, because here I I thought, now, how do we apply this? How, how, How do we apply it? First of all, let me ask you this. These are the questions I had to struggle with. Ask yourself if the reason you're, not, you're experiencing so little persecution is because you speak and live so much like the world, there's no reason to persecute you. Maybe the reason we're not suffer, suffering persecution is because we're not being faithful to speak up, stand up, and suffer shame. Okay, that's a personal question. You've got to answer that for yourself. You've got to search your own heart. Number two, 
Think in terms of greater to lesser. Remember this guy does greater, lesser to greater arguments? Well, think of greater to lesser. If they were right to endure that grade of persecution, then how much more should we be faithful in the little things? So here's my point. If we don't persevere under the little pressure we have now, what makes us think we're going to do it under the greater pressure? Does that make sense? So instead of saying, well, I'm glad we're not having that kind of persecution. I can get back to doing whatever I want to do. No, we need to say, hey, guess what? That's coming. I really believe that's coming. But here's the reality. The way we prepare for it now is, how do I persevere to attend regularly? How do I persevere to draw near to God daily? How do I persevere to give consistently? How do I persevere in witnessing in a climate where it's increasingly decisive? Okay, so that's second. Third, I would suggest get alone with the Lord, get alone with the Lord and ask Him where you are shrinking back instead of persevering. Get with your grow group and ask them, do you see areas in my life where you think I'm shrinking back? Fourth, the point in this passage is that these Hebrew Christians had been truly born again and they suffered loss and they paid a price to remain loyal and remembering this would help them to press on in the present. So look back And even though you might not have suffered great persecution, look back to the way God enabled you to persevere so that you'll press on in the present. Okay, so that's four points of application. Now, the second thing they're supposed to do is not only look back, but they're to look forward. And that's verses 34 through 38, or I'm sorry, 35 through 38. Actually, it's the end of verse 34. Notice the reason they were joyful... So remember to look forward to press on. The reason they were joyful about losing their earthly possessions is because they were looking forward to what? Better and eternal possessions in the future. So there's now a shift. There's a shift. So look at verse 34. A better possession and a lasting one. Look at verse 35. Do not throw away your great conf- throw away your confidence which has great reward. That's future. For you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Again, that's future. So you see the whole shift from was look back. But really what he's saying is when you look back, remember the reason you persevered back there is because you were looking forward. And so keep looking forward. So really the whole thing's about looking forward. Look back so that you can keep looking forward in order to press on. So... Remember the future days of a kingdom filled with better eternal possessions. That's verse 34. Better eternal possessions. Two, greater rewards. That's verse 35. And the final inheritance or the final salvation you were promised. That's verse 36. The final salvation. Look forward to those things. And when you do, you will press on. So don't throw away. Press on. Don't throw away. Number two, do persevere in pleasing God by obeying His will. 
And that's really what he says. You have need of perseverance so that having done the will of God, you will, re- you will reach your final salvation. So let me emphasize, persevering means obeying. And it's not optional. And it's not occasional. You persevere in doing. Because remember how chapter 10, in, how chapter 10 started? Jesus says, sacrifices you, you do not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. Behold, I have come to do your will. And we're supposed to be like him. We're supposed to do our will. And then finally, remember to listen up, to press on. And I can't develop this for you, but basically what he ends with in verses 37 through 38 is he he ends with scripture, which this guy loves to do this. Every passage, nearly every passage ends with quoting the Old Testament. And the idea is God is speaking through the scriptures. And so the point is, if you're going to press on, you got to listen up and hear what God is saying. And here, I'll give you your blanks. Listen up and don't harden your hearts. The coming one is coming. That's literally how it's translated. The coming one is coming. Soon, suddenly, sure, so press on. Two, the righteous one, that's us, will live by an obedient faith. Those who really realize he's coming and look forward to that, do it by living with an obedient faith. Three, the living one, the living God, takes no pleasure in those who shrink back and he destroys them. That takes us back to the warning last week. Fourth, we are the persevering ones who don't shrink back to destruction, but those who have a faith that perseveres. A faith that perseveres. That's all out of those scriptures, two Old Testament scriptures that he quotes. So he basically says this, Look back to the former days of your conversion and your persecution that you persevered through. Look forward to the reward, the promises of your final salvation in the coming kingdom. And in the meantime, listen up to what God is saying and do it. By faith, because He's coming. And because the reality is this, those who fall away never had saving faith and will face fiery, frightening judgment. That's just a great passage. And believe me, I cut a bunch out just to get to that point. Folks, we need to press on. I hope you have a conversion to look back to. And I hope since that conversion to this day, you have seen God enable you to persevere. And if you're suffering right now, and you're drifting, and you're neglecting, there is hope in this passage. Press on. Press on. Press on. Look back, look forward, and listen up. Man, we need to come back to this passage. We, we, we really do. It's a great passage. All right? You, so here's what we're going to do next Sunday for Easter. We're going to go to the very last passage in the book of Hebrews. And it talks about the great shepherd who God raised up. So we're going to stay in Hebrews and finish Easter out in the last paragraph of the book of Hebrews. So be here, invite, and come. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your persevering grace. I pray that each one of us here would have 
God-given, grace-generated grit to press on, to not fall away because our faith is true and real in the living God and in your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, let us worship as people who know you and who have been brought through hard times and who will persevere as the times get harder in the future. We pray this in Jesus' name.